1: On this program, Debbie Millman talks with illustrator Sarah Blake about how she came to be fully tattooed, why it's so great to draw girls, and what it's like to paint a portrait of an NBA star.
2: They have to have approval, but it was like so many chains of command where Kobe would be telling his agent, who would be telling the agency, who would be telling my producer, who would be
1: telling me. (laughs) Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Sarah Blake is an illustrator, designer, and a fine artist. She is great at drawing, but painting? According to Sarah, not so much. But here's her workaround. When she wants color, she lets her computer do the work. The results are stunning. They're gorgeous, ethereal images that sit somewhere between realism and abstraction. We spoke a little while ago in Cincinnati. Sarah had two pieces at the Contemporary Art Center where she was showing alongside her sometime collaborator, Joshua Davis. We sat down to talk in the members lounge of the museum. So Sarah, the first thing that I want to ask you about is your tattoos. Let's talk about your tattoos. Sure. Can you describe them for our listeners?
2: I think it's easier to describe what I don't have tattooed. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's (laughs) do that. Let's definitely do that. So I don't have all of my stomach done. I've left my girls alone.
0: Girls, meaning (laughs) the things on your chest?
2: Yes, (laughs) and and my booty alone. And uh, pretty much everything, I actually don't have the tops of my feet tattooed either. and I'm leaving my face alone. But um, everything else is pretty much tattooed and uh, I just sort of been filling in the white space gradually the past couple of years. Um, I started when I was 18 and I'm like a go big or go home kind of girl. So my first, very first tattoo was a little Celtic knot on my shoulder which within a month turned into my entire back. Um, and I've since had that entire thing removed, but, um. And what
0: made you decide to remove it?
2: Um, after I got good tattoos. (laughs) 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 I just, I think I was infatuated with the whole culture of, um, putting art on your skin and having it live forever and having it change with your body and having it have this sort of story that lived on with you. But right after my back piece, which was just all terrible black tribal work, um, my next piece was by Steve Bolts, who now does all my tattoos. Now I, I really only have tattoos by Steve Bolts. And he was like, well, what do you want? And I'm like, I, I don't really even know subject matter wise. I don't know color wise. Um, why don't you, you just knew do- knew that you wanted it. Yeah, I was like, why don't you just do whatever you want? And he's like, well, where do you want it? I was like, somewhere on my arm. He was like, what about a sleeve? And that was my entire right arm was my next tattoo.
0: And what kind of a story do you think it tells about who you are? I. Actually,
2: prefer just to keep them for aesthetic value only. They're they're purely decorative to me. And uh, I have on my finger actually I have one tattoo that says uh, PMA for positive mental attitude, which is something I like to just have in front of me for a reminder when I'm I'm working. And then um, I have my favorite E Cummings poem on my wrist.
0: What is that? Can uh, you read it?
2: It's uh, "Since feeling is First, and uh, I just it's also a reminder to sort of go with my gut. Um, in all situations in life. And it's, again, it's on my hands. It's something I can see all the time.
0: I read an article about you wherein you stated the more you've gotten tattooed over the years, the more you feel like you finally become yourself.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's strange because, you know, uh, I'm a very shy person and so I wouldn't have thought this was something I would do for myself. But um, yeah, it just, I just, I feel like I've built, I've if I could have painted myself, I would have painted myself with tattoos and I'm just sort of slowly becoming me over the years that I get covered.
0: So you grew up in Richmond, Virginia. And from what I have read, um, you really didn't feel like yourself as well when, until you came to New York City. Yeah. And so that was when you went to college. Right. But growing up, I read that you were a total weirdo. Um, Or that's how you've self-described your childhood self. um, And that you were really influenced by your dad, who you've described as having had really weird taste. So what was weird about it?
2: I just think personality-wise, he was always, you know, he'd teach me, like... Great green green gobs of gushy grime and go guts and mutilated monkey meat, like you know that little thing that kids love. It's just like more quirkiness, um, and I think that translated visually and aesthetically too. Um, my mom was more the proper designer, and my dad was more like you know go in the backyard and collect bugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, I think I was I've always self-described as just being a weird kid, um, and I think that my Father's taste probably allowed that to blossom a bit.
0: <laughs> so did you, you always were making things. I read that you made a fort behind a Christmas tree and you were always creating all sorts of drawings and you were obsessed with wolves. And <laughs> so did you always know from the very beginning of your memory that you wanted to be a creative person and live a creative life and create for a living?
2: Always, yeah, um, I didn't know how that would translate into a job, and I didn't know as far as being out of college um, but I all I knew was I wanted to make stuff whether it was out of play-doh or clay or you know m- you know drawing supplies or bugs I didn't know, but I just always wanted that was. It's, it's almost felt like an, sort of an existential thing where I don't know that I really exist unless I'm making something physical with my hands that has a life outside of me making it and touching it and then it just goes somewhere. And, um, that makes me feel comforted in some way.
0: I understand you have a very special degree from NYU where you went to undergraduate school.
2: It is special but it's a pure accident. <laughs> Basically what happened is I, I had um, two main interests in high school. Um, one was creative writing. I thought maybe I could be a, rea- a writer and create things that way or a visual artist. And um, and the school at um, New York University, University called Gallatin School of Individualized Study was the only place I could find in the handbook <laughs> that would allow a double major in creative writing and studio art. So it gave me exactly what I was looking for, and I, I adored school.
0: Now, I read that during that time that you felt that you didn't have a style or a real focus other than mm-hmm. drawing and that you felt you were a terrible painter, Mm -hmm. a pretty terrible and contrived photographer, Mm -hmm. and an equally crappy sculptor.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a direct quote, yes. (laughs) And
0: that it wasn't until the year after graduating that you really felt that you came into your own stylistically. Yes. So, So what happened for you to come into your own style and... How did you identify that that was the kind of work that you wanted to continue to pursue?
2: Um, I just sort of pulled out a blank sheet of paper. It was like I'm just this is going to be a throwaway piece, no expectations, and I'm just going to draw a portrait of my sister. And it ended up being the first piece where I felt like I wasn't trying, and it was natural. And you know, my line quality was sort of. It felt like it was in my own words. Um, you can say that about something about line art and um, it just felt natural and so from then on i just sort of i captured that feeling and that's how this my style happened it was, it was sort of improvised
0: so I, I read that you've described it as hybrid art using both traditional and digital methods so you initially draw everything by hand mm-hmm. and then do you scan that into your computer and then create layers of color and additional layers of line in that? How do you, yes. How is, is, that's how, yeah, exactly how you do exactly. it? Exactly. Um, wow. Yeah,
2: you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it came about um, a couple ways. Um, first being I'm, I'm not a good painter. Um, I've never been good at it. I use paint for texture, only not to um, you know uh, really capture a subject matter. And also the fact that I've, it sounds contrived, maybe, but it's also a way of uh, scrapbooking, and you know all of the the textures that I create or um, find are from New York City, and it's you know it's very it's a window of my life when I made that piece because it's you know assets taken from all sorts of different places.
0: The next five years of your career, you pretty much worked in advertising and design agencies and doing art on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of work were you doing in, advertising, in the advertising and design agencies that you were working for?
2: I originally started uh, working with Engine 3 and I was doing, um, was doing a lot of like, retouching and scanning for um, you know, uh, you know, models would send in tear sheets and they'd want them in their portfolio site. And it was really just pr- high production work and, um, and nothing really that creative. And then I, from there I went on to work for a very small interactive shop called um, Hudson Union and it's it's terrifying to think about it now but i was learning everything on the job i remember having to my my boss gave me an assignment the first day to you know make a design based on the wireframes and i didn't know what wireframes were and i had to google it at the job um and uh and then do it and then the do job. it <laughs> Google somehow, instructions
0: on the uh, side <laughs> i don't know how
2: on earth i managed to you know have jobs that lasted years based on being predominantly self-taught but um i I think lots of people do that, <laughs> so uh, I did that i, I still I still freelance uh, graphic design for advertising agencies and um I think that was extremely helpful just because i I got to sort of learn all of my digital skills um, while getting paid for it, which I feel like is just did I trick someone <laughs> like, how did I manage that but um and i I worked under some great um creative directors who um really taught me how to translate big ideas into creative works where, you know, I've always, just, I've always just made art that had no meaning really. It was just for the visceral pleasure of making something. But I learned how um, ideas can communicate things visually and you can, and I almost feel dirty saying this, but can sell things and, um, and, and be jobs. Um, so I learned a lot of that through, through agencies.
0: So, what gave you the courage to go from making art on the side to being able to say, I'm going to make art front and center and that's going to be what I do for my living?
2: Um, I think it was, I think I always wanted to do that. I think it was a matter of creating enough work um, where you had something to show for your your style and you had a big enough portfolio that your clients could have confidence in what you were going to make for them. If you don't have enough consistency, I think it's it's harder to scary for them. Yeah, um, and I think also uh, you know being able to pay rent more than a month in advance is pretty key when you live in New York City. It's tough, and um, and just I had a lot of support. You know, I had mentors like Joshua, um, who's I'm doing the collaboration with here, um, was incredibly supportive. My parents, um, I just had a lot of those positive voices of my friends and family, but I think that was pretty key.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the collaborations. I understand that your first outreach to Joshua Davis, your, I guess, unofficial mentor, would that be fair to (laughs) describe him that way, um, was an email. You just sent him an email. Yeah. So what was it about your email that piqued his attention? I'm sure he must get thousands of emails. Yeah,
2: I'm still baffled by that one. But I... I really, Did he see a kindred spirit in you somehow? I think so. I think it was like the way, I think I had put something in my email about the way I worked and I attached a couple images. And to this day, I'm not quite sure why he took interest in me, but um, he's, he told me at least <laughs> that he um, really liked my work and invited me out to his studio. And I remember um, having zero time and... Being like, I'm going to not sleep and figure out a way to get all my work done, and because there's no way that I could ever pass up an invitation to go to Josh's studio, and he took me through some of his work, and he was so humble and telling me how how he made stuff, and I'm like, dude, I already know how you work. <laughs> <laughs> like I know this is about you, but he was just showing me, um, you know, the back the back end of some of his uh, code and his projects, and. Uh, and then from there, we were, at the end of the night, we walked away with you know, a self-assignment to do a collaboration. And what was that? And this was, I sent him a bunch of images of sea life, sea creatures. And uh, it took us quite a while to actually connect on it, but he ended up using some coral and, uh, and making, he made like six or so pieces of the coral in these amazing scaly dragon forms. And, uh, and then compiled them into one piece. And I just, I still can't believe that <laughs> we've collaborated, but you know, that's four years, four years ago. And since then we've you know hung out con- you know, countless times and worked on other projects together. And yeah, Josh has been really encouraging.
0: You also recently completed a collaboration with your sister yeah. who is a musician. Now I understand when she was first born, you wanted your parents to name her colorful liner
2: yeah that's a family joke <laughs> I don't. hey yeah. colorful come on over I mean that's a four-year-old naming her sister it's so fantastic. it's <laughs> fantastic so colorful liner
0: what is a colorful liner
2: Got me, man. Uh. (laughs) And why didn't they do
0: it? Why didn't they listen to you? I don't know. I think it's a great name. (laughs) So talk about the collaboration. She's Um, your younger sister by four years. Younger
2: sister, and she's uh, she's very shy as well. But she's more shy because she's younger, I think. And she got the music genes. I did not get any of the music genes. You know, I've picked up a couple instruments that I abandoned, and she would younger sister would inherit them. So one of them was the guitar. And she got really good at the guitar, but no one in my family knew because she would play so secretively. So, you know, I left for uh, NYU when I was 18. And then she left the house, you know, four years later. So it was like this eight year gap of me being in school. And then she's in school directly after. I remember uh, pretty recently she sent me some, um, we were just chatting on um, iChat. And she was like, hey, I wrote these songs or me, and I played them, and I couldn't, I didn't even recognize her voice, because I'd never heard her play like that, just her, and, um, and I was amazed and proud and all of that, but she's so shy that I could never be like, you gotta make a CD, you gotta play in coffee shops. So, um, it just so happened that I had a, a client job, and they were asking me to send them samples of musicians that were probably not that well known, or were just breaking, and I did, I found, I sent a couple, you know, people that I found on YouTube that had really been enjoying, but I was also like, I have to, you know, I couldn't be doing this assignment if I didn't also throw in my sister. Um, I'm, I'm really inspired by her, and here are some of her tracks. And they love the idea of a sister collaboration, and I am a huge fan of my own sister, which is pretty cool. And they, they ended up doing the project with um, me doing art inspired by my sister's piece of music.
0: And where could our listeners Go and um, see and listen to this piece.
2: Uh, SAC Roots. It's, um, it's just Sarah and Emily Blake, and the print is Treehouse.
0: And so you have your own company now. And so when you go to your website, which is called Hello Zoe, the Zoe is spelled Z-S-O. Mm-hmm. And I read that you use those letters because aesthetically and phonetically you found them beautiful. Yes. Is there any other connotation about the Z, the S, and the O beyond the beauty of those letters?
2: Well, I think I liked how uh, they come together and the Z and the S make an upside-down heart. Um, I think that love makes the world go round. It's so hippy-dippy, but... (laughs)
0: um, I read a, a marvelous quote that I think... Is very pertinent to this (laughs) part of the conversation. And and you say that all I know is that without loving something or someone else, I have a really hard time getting up in the morning. Love is the greatest motivation for being alive.
2: That would summarize it. (laughs) Yeah. So the Z and
0: the S make make a heart. Yes. And then the significance of the O?
2: I don't know. I think it's um, just, it kind of symbolizes the universe. I have this hunch that I think everything I believe in karma, I guess, and um, I believe things all come full circle. And so it was just sort of a nice vowel to tack on to the end. And I I created this moniker just because I, when I was starting out, I didn't know what I was setting out to do or what I wanted to make even. So it was, I sort of liked either being a company or being some sort of entity or maybe being a guy. You know, no one, no one really quite knew what it was, and so I liked that freedom to be invisible.
0: Let's talk about failure, because failure seems to be a recurring theme, not only in the pieces that I've read about you, um, in in various places online, but also it's a significant part of a presentation that you give. Um, you talk about failure being the only option. Yes. So, can you elaborate? I
2: think that I'm just a person that always learns everything the hard way, whether it's art-related or not. And um, I think that I've taught myself how to paint and draw, or I wouldn't, I shouldn't even say paint, still, because I still don't know how to paint. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that some of my happiest accidents, the things that I, I liked enough, were uh, through doing some, not following a sketch, or. Um, or, you know, thinking that I'd messed up a piece and then once I get it scanned in, I realize that it's actually quite perfect. I like happy accidents. Um, I like elements of surprise. I, I just also think failure is, is freeing because it means you don't, if you, if you allow yourself to fail, it means you don't have expectations and that means you can exceed any, any expe- expectations you would have originally come up for yourself.
0: Do you ever feel despair in failing?
2: I feel fear, but not despair. I think, um, you know, even being here at uh, the art center or speaking on stage, I feel utter fear. You set it up in your mind that you could fail, you could stutter, you could, you know, not say anything in your head that you had planned to say beforehand, but um, you're never gonna get as far as you could if you just don't put yourself in those terrifying, perhaps fail-inducing
0: situations. Well, when you're when you're doing a talk, you know that there's a beginning and an end. So even if you are failing miserably or beautifully, <laughs> you know that there's sort of an expiration date to the you experience. You can only fail for an hour. <laughs> but when you're making art, do you ever worry that the failure might just continue forever? Um,
2: I don't think of it in that term, in those terms. I think uh, more it's just. The digital life of your images. People always are posting images that I made, you know, five years ago and, and I extra don't like the ones that are old because I've gone on to make things that are more exciting to me. Um, and those things just, you're like, Oh, you're posting that image that I hate again. (laughs) And I think that's just, you know, that's everybody that makes images. You just get sick of your own work to different extents. Um, yeah, you can't, kill, you can't kill your stuff on Google.
0: <laughs> Has a very long memory. You know. <laughs> uh, let's talk about a couple of your projects. Okay. Let, I want to talk to you about your 100 Girls Project, which is portraits, 100 portraits mm-hmm. of girls, women, yep. dames. I love um, that. <laughs> and was this the um, project that was first initiated by the drawing of your sister?
2: My sister was probably my very first girl portrait. Um, but it's just been one of those subject matters that I've always, I've just kept redrawing and redrawing my entire life or career. And um, this this artist based in Virginia, he goes by Stunt Kid, and he's got this um, book out called Girls Are Pretty, and it's like, that's the best title I could ever think. It's just like, why why does everyone, anyone draw girls? There's just, there's something magical about, you know, being able to draw hair, and it just, um, becomes this abstract element. I think that particular series started. It was for a show, and I only had to do ten of them, or something like that. And uh, and it was also just an exercise to make myself do a lot of a lot of work. And um, by reducing it to one subject matter, you sort of don't see the subject matter anymore, and it becomes about uh, you know pattern and texture and all these other elements that I was more interested in.
0: And is it true that now that you've finished the 100 portraits, you're going back and redoing them?
2: Oh, I haven't finished them. (laughs) Oh, you
0: haven't. So is the intent then, when you're done, that you will go back and redo them?
2: I I mean, I don't think I'll redo them, but I think I'll probably, maybe it'll be 200 girls. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There seemed to be some ambiguity about the number and more of the research yeah, that I am doing. I,
2: the one thing I do wanna absolutely do with them is get them all onto a wall and see them as one mass and turn them into you know, just one giant piece. Um,
0: sort of like the tattoos.
2: Yeah, there you go, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and I think to display them in chronological order is would be very interesting because um, it's if you put 1 and 100 next to each other, there might be no relation, but if you put, you know, 47 and 48 next to each other, you can see the language continued. And um, I've been doing this series for um, two years, a year and a half, and I've only made it to 13 just based on all of my projects that I have going on. Um, So it's going to take, I mean, probably another five years to finish them. So it's going to be, you know, a pretty long window of my career, so I'm very curious to see.
0: And it'll be fun watching them come out. year.
2: evolution, yeah.
0: The other project that I wanted to ask you about was the work that you did for Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, you did a series of basketball portraits. Yeah. So talk about that. Your work is so beautiful and in many ways so feminine. And then when I saw the way that you used your style to articulate these sort of sweaty men <laughs> mid-dribble, I thought, okay, this girl's got rain. <laughs> so so talk about what that was like.
2: That was a really tough one. That's definitely an instance of when your clients push you to um, do things you would never do, maybe not even want to do. But um, at the end, I definitely felt like I, I was a better illustrator for it. Um, and also the fact that um, I've never considered myself a photorealistic artist at all. I've always intentionally abstract things, and there there must have been 17 rounds on every single mural. Where especially with the higher profile um, players like LeBron and Kobe, they there there are their own brands, and they have to be very um, they have to monitor it. And did they have to have approval? They have to have approval, but it was like one of the things. These you know. It's, so many chains of command where Kobe would be telling his agent who would be telling the agency, who would be telling my producer, who would be telling me.
0: <laughs> so, oh my gosh.
2: So every time there was a change, it was just it was pretty excruciating. But I understood why it was happening for sure. Um, to, but just incredibly challenging and in that I had to try to put more realism than in than I was ever used to doing. And the files themselves were just massive. So it was very difficult to even go in and change layers because... I think one of my files was something embarrassing, like 20 gigs. Uh, I know. My, my boyfriend's a photo retoucher, and he's like, I didn't even know you could make files that day. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um, expre- ex- express how you felt the day you heard from Mikey. So you just pick up the phone, and you're like, Sarah Blake. It, was,
2: it was an email, and uh, it, it came through My my agent told me, and I remember telling my conversation with my agent about six months prior and I was like, my job, my main goal this year is to work for Nike, just because they, they, everything they do in their brand is is so well curated and I wanted to be a part of that. You know, I think that's most, most young illustrators, that's the Mecca. And, um, and within, you know, a couple months of having that conversation, I just got this email out of the blue, I think I had um, emailed an art director a while ago, just being like, hey, I need any <laughs> illustration. And it's just the timing happened to be there for this, this project. And, uh, and then it took another four months to get those murals made. But yeah, I was floored. I was so excited. And then, up, of course, like in it, I'm just like, make it stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so did you get any final feedback from Kobe or from LeBron about the final oh, work?
2: No, I, I tried to take pictures in the store for the, for the murals from opening day, and I actually got kicked out. <laughs> Did you like, tell them who I you made were? Those. <laughs> I'm really shy, too. I don't, I, don't, I don't like being like, yeah, I made those. <laughs> I was all shy about it, and they just thought I was this creepy person oh. like, taking pictures of their store.
0: So um, in, in speaking about your coming goals, your upcoming goals, you said that Nike was your goal that year. Um, I read that you recently said that this is the most wide open, clear blue sky, scary year I've seen so far. I'm finally feeling more confidence than ever before. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering what you attribute to that.
2: I think a couple of my dreams have come true in the past year. Um, traveling for work, being places like Cincinnati for this opening and for OFF Fest. Um, and I've been able, I've been lucky enough to do a couple of them in the past year and I have a couple more coming up, um, going straight to South by Southwest, then I'm going to FITC in Toronto, I'm going to Barcelona. These are all just huge dreams for me. And um, now that they're actually on the calendar, um, I think I'm still trying to figure out what the next big goal is. Um, I've also just moved, I, I bought my first studio and I've moved in and that was a huge goal. And I think really, to be honest, I think my goals are personal work and sleeping and finding personal happiness it's it's much less uh career driven stuff and um i think once i get those accomplished then i think the next career goal will reveal itself
0: well i think i can join all of my listeners in saying we look forward to what you're doing next thank you so much sarah blake for being on design
2: thank you so much for having me
0: You can find more about Sarah Blake and see some of her work at zoe.com, Z-S-O, but it's pronounced so, as in so beautiful. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City.